We are now about to hear the last in our fascinating series of recordings of the Easter Rebels. Today you will hear the lost and recovered voice of James Connolly, to be followed by a live studio discussion of what we have heard. This panel will be asked to react to the voice and the ideas just broadcast, and to respond to queries from the public on related teams. You can contact the station on 87 59 At this time, there are many treatments of the theme of the 1916 Rising, but none as dramatic as this series. We hope that you enjoy and benefit from our broadcast of Lost Easter Voices. Welcome to Lost Easter Voices. I'm Charlotte Tannen, and today, Easter Sunday, we listen to the last of these amazing recordings of the 1916 leaders. If you've missed any of the previous series, you'll find it up on our podcast site. We listen now to the voice of one of the most significant architects of the Rising, James Connolly. It is the early morning of the 12th of May and I'm in the cell of Mr James Connolly, who has been transferred here from Dublin Castle Infirmary. You seem weak, sir, and very pale. Perhaps I should not disturb you with questions. No, no, I'm ground, really. Uh, but you need to rest. I'll have plenty of time to rest later. Now tell me, what are you after? Uh, to see what motivated you to go out last week. I sense it may differ from some of your colleagues. We went out to break the connection between this country and the British Empire, and to establish an Irish Republic. We succeeded in proving that Irish men are ready to die, endeavouring to win for Ireland, for Ireland, those national rights which the British government has been asking them to die to win for Belgium. But surely uh, this was a betrayal of your government at a time of national emergency. (laughs) A very British point of view. We believe that the British government has no right in Ireland. This makes that government forever a usurpation. I personally thank God that I have lived to see the day when thousands of Irish men and boys and hundreds of Irish women and girls were ready were ready to affirm that truth and to attest it with their lives. But you're an internationalist. Where did your allegiance lie? I had a banner displayed across the front of Liberty Hall. It said, We serve neither King nor Kaiser, only Ireland. I have a sense that you are fighting for the right to live in a different type of society. The first social right of man is to live. And he cannot enjoy that right, whilst the means of life are the private property of a class. So you are fighting a different war than the rest? I agree. I told the Citizen Army Force to retain their weapons when the Republic was won, as there would still be work to be done. What were you trying to achieve? With the establishment of the Republic, I would have worked for the creation of one big union embracing all. We'd have had the most effective form of industrial warfare today. This would have led, have led to the social administration of the cooperative commonwealth of the future. The big plans, this is what you prophesied then. The only true prophets are they who carve out the future which they announce. 
This is why the citizen army was out. But you wound up in a largely nationalist war. I'm sure the socialists won't understand this. But I'm also an Irishman. I found it easy to merge socialism and nationalism. Nationalism was necessary to free the country and socialism to improve it, you see. McDermott had other ideas. Oh, yes. We discussed this many times. I explained that the ideal of a socialist republic, implying as it does, an economic as well as a political revolution, would be sure to alienate our middle-class supporters. They would dread the loss of their property and privileges. I knew this. And what was his response? He wished only to break the connection with England, not upset the native entrepreneurs. When he talked about freeing Ireland, I asked, are you speaking of the soil of Ireland? Or is it the Irish people you mean? If the latter, from what do you propose to free them? Would we have green-coated soldiers guarding privilege instead of red-coated ones? Unless you set about the organisation of the Socialist Republic, your efforts will be in vain. I think his nationalism would have deafened him to such remarks, Mr Connolly. I'm afraid so. McDermott felt that he had enough to do with planning a secretive blow against Britain. But just being anti-British is an unhealthy nationalism. I tried to get him to consider the society after a successful revolution. I had to spend too much of my time explaining what socialism is not, instead of explaining all the positives of the system. For example? For example, McDermott and the others were listening to Father Kane, who was saying in his Lantern lectures that socialism meant state ownership of children, free love and obligatory atheism. The father completely misunderstood the subject. I had to write labour, nationality and religion to explain all three, but McDermott was too busy to consider this. A hard task with nationalism so dominant at present. But we are ahead of ourselves, as I wish to record your motivation first. Uh, now, if it's not too difficult, could you tell me a little about your early years, please? Early years? Well, I... I was born in Edinburgh in 1868. My poor father was a manure carter. My early life experience was being reared in a British slum as a child of Irish immigrants. Like many poor young men, my brother John and I were drawn to the British Army. I served briefly in the 1st Battalion, King's Liverpool Regiment. In 1890, I married Lily Reynolds, and we moved back to Edinburgh, where, where I got employment with the corporation. Oh. Uh, if this is too much, we can stop. No, no. Let's keep going. Just be patient with my delivery. Uh, when did you come back to Ireland? In 1896. 
I was invited to become the paid secretary of the Dublin Socialist Society. I lived among the dulled working class in Dublin for the next seven years. Dulled? Are, are you calling them stupid? No, no, not at all. I'm describing their condition as being so repressed as to lead to permanent lethargy. It was almost impossible to rouse them. But I was still convinced that the Irish labour movement was the only hope of the reconquest of Ireland. But I made a little headway. With a growing family to support and frustrated by the lack of response from workers, I emigrated to the United States in 1903. But in Ireland, undercurrents were emerging. On my return in 1910, I found the situation much more receptive. I think Tom Clark found much the same when he returned at that time. Yes, uh, different currents were merging. Yates and Hyde were at work. I was appointed a representative of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union and sent to Belfast. While there, I helped found the Irish Labour Party. I see that yours was a different journey to nearly all the others involved. I was in Dublin for the terrible 1913 lockout. Its failure for Labour led to Jim Larkin leaving for America. I stayed. This is where I had to fight. Dublin is the worst slum in Europe. I became General Secretary of the ITGWU and Commander of the Irish Citizen Army. You can see the merging of my two passions. Why did you need your own force when the Irish Volunteers were forming? My officers and men were all committed to the ideology of an independent socialist republic. I can understand how Mr. Connolly in the present climate a nationalist army might be formed, but somehow you created this socialist army. How did you do it? We used the cruel behaviour of the employers to recruit. Let me explain. There was a pattern of intimidation of workers, where they are capriciously locked out for a period. This to put manners on them and keep them insecure. However... This behaviour by employers kindly helped us in recruiting and drilling the men. How so? Well, as company after company locks out its men, we'd bring them up to Liberty Hall to drill and train. When that squad of men goes back to work, another squad is locked out, and we begin again. The whole key is getting drilled. The new Irish Citizen Army had a larger reserve of trained men than any other force in Dublin. It was a great game. And all these men were ready to fight in Ireland and for Ireland. And what happened then? With our own army and my sense of purpose, I believe I revitalised the Irish labour movement. We needed the citizen army for future eventualities. My force knew what they were fighting for. We were more cohesive, ideologically, than the volunteers, and better trained. Would it not have been better to work with Redmond for home rule? Uh, would that not have served the interests of workers better? Redmond was naive. 
Asquith was heading for a permanent partition of Ireland. That would have weakened further the interests of the working class on both sides of this partition. We had to stop that. But Redmond had persuaded thousands of volunteers to enlist and leave for the Western Front. How did you feel about that? Better that they were over there than here in British uniform to fight us when we came out. I'm trying to ascertain any difference between your position on Redmond and the others. For example, would you consider him a pacifist? Far from being a pacifist. Redmond and his associate, Wee Joe Devlin of the Ancient Order of Hooligans, have organised the ignorant, the drunken and the rowdy, and thrown the shield of religion around their excesses, ensuring that it is impossible to conduct a political contest in the south of Ireland, except on the lines of a civil war, where every man who dares to oppose the Redmanite party or the AOH must take his life into his hands. Redmond has a huge following for his position. He's been praised for uh, advancing the cause of Irish Home Rule. Surely that would be an improvement. Mr. John Redmond, leader of the Irish race, his heart bleeds for the poor of Ireland. Yet he would not vote for the Feeding of School Children Act to be applied to Ireland. How is his party so popular? Redmond and his party maintain their reactionary hold simply because the Irish Unionists are even more reactionary. In the work of establishing a socialist republic, we can expect no help from the bigots of either green or orange. I think Clark and McDermott shared your views on Redmond, but on little else. And what of your own activities? It, it is early days yet, but rough estimates put the debt toll for the week in the hundreds. How do you feel about that? If the bulk of these were soldiers, British and Irish, and I can live with that. Thank God there are no fresh graves in Flanders filled by men I'd coaxed or bullied into leaving their homes and families. Do you feel that your rising interrupted this enlistment? Yes. Our rising will stop the flood of enlistments, which will dry to a trickle as news of our executions reach people. Those volunteers who stayed home have stood steadfast by the highest ideals of freedom, so that the flag of labour, so that the flag of labour became one with the standard of national liberty. And what prompted you to consider rising? The degradation wrought on the people of Ireland was so deep and humiliating that no agency less potent, less potent than the red tide of war would enable us to recover our self-respect So, independent of the IRB, you were planning an insurrection? Yes. I feared that the war might end suddenly before we acted. I feared that Pierce and Clark would delay. I made even more strident public speeches as I wanted to stir up the volunteers to pressurise McDermott and Clark to act. These public announcements would not have suited McDermott in particular, I suspect. They were too secretive by far. I had to flush them out. Oh. Are you in too much pain? We should we stop? No. Let's continue. I'll, I'll be all right. Was this when the uh, IRB acted against you? Yes. I had indicated 
that if they didn't act, we would act alone. They feared that my mobilising so publicly would provoke Dublin Castle repressive measures against all of us. They reacted as I planned. Two IRB men called to Liberty Hall, and I left with them for a secret destination. They came armed, ready for a fight, but I went willingly. This is what I wanted. A face-to-face meeting with the military council. And? I met with Pierce, Plunkett and McDermott. We talked for three days. They told me about plans to import German arms, about the extent of their plans, and I became so enthusiastic that I was the one to keep them talking for three days. I didn't want to go home. We agreed an alliance. I joined the military council. Your strategy worked? Pretty much. I told my own officers and swore them to secrecy. The military council told me that McNeil favoured a guerrilla fight from the hills. I advised against it. We'd quickly run out of supplies. My proposals for an urban rising were closer to those of Clark and Plunkett. We had a good knowledge of street fighting techniques. I knew we had to strike at the capitalist base, the industrial heart of the cities. To some extent, the IRB were implementing your plans. Exactly, although I didn't trust McDermott. He smiled too readily and too much. And so, to the Rising, uh, tell me a little about your involvement on that last weekend. I had lived in Liberty Hall for several weeks prior to the Rising. Just before I retired on Saturday night, I got word of Caseman's arrest, so no German arms. We'd still managed between the Citizen Army and the vast network of volunteers. Uh, but, um... But I woke to hear McNeil's intervention. Furious. I cried. I don't mind admitting. One of my officers offered to go and shoot McNeil, but I forbade it. I told my men that if the volunteers did not mobilize, we would still go out as planned. An emergency meeting of the military council was called to meet in Liberty Hall that morning. While McNeil was with the volunteers, his actions affected the plans of the Citizen Army. How did you feel about that? (sighs) McNeil advised that we should wait until the British moved against us. The British government has not held Ireland down for 700 years by any such foolish waiting. It struck in its own time and its blow always paralysed the people. Too often... The leaders of the people held the people back by talk about premature insurrection. McNeil was wrong, tactically, to hesitate. Did you support the Sunday postponement? Yes, I was happy that we were still going to do it. I was offered the role of vice president. I believe my political creed precluded me from being offered the presidency. Pierce was a safer bet. Between myself... And the other members of the council there were ideological divisions. I was appointed Commandant General of the Dublin Division of the Army of the Irish Republic.
recognition, surely, of the esteem you were held in. Just pragmatics. I went down to our printers to arrange for the printing of the proclamation. I told my officers that if we didn't strike tomorrow, the castle would hunt us all down, and there'd be wholesale massacre. So, to the actual rising, what can you tell me? Uh, one thing I must admit before I forget, one thing I got wrong was my assumption that the British military would not destroy the property of the capitalist class. And almost immediately, they began deploying heavy artillery. So, on Sunday after the military council meeting, what did you do? Well, the volunteers were at home responding to MacNeil's public consolation. I took my citizen army on a final route march past Dublin Castle to show them that we were not acting in concert with the volunteers. All was well. Just a routine march. When we returned to Liberty Hall, I addressed my army. I told them that they were now soldiers of the Irish Republic, and this building was their barracks, and they were confined to barracks. How did they react? They were jubilant. I told them that they would not lay down their arms until they had struck a blow for Ireland. So, Easter Monday morning. We were up early, breakfasted, ready for noon. I told Michael Malin, good luck, we will not meet again. He was going with the bulk of the citizen army to take Stephen's Green, I to the GPO. I remember he asked if we had a chance. I told him no. We were going out to be slaughtered. I had no regrets. I had a full life. And couldn't ask for a better end than this. I was hearing about the poor volunteer. I was hearing about the poor volunteer turnout. That put the tin hat on it. What happened then? We marched to the GPO. Only 150 men of the volunteers. When we arrived in Sackville Street, opposite the building, I roared, Left turn, charge! Some did. The rest stalled. They, they didn't know me. Plunkett, who was being helped along, roared, Take the GPO! The remainder charged forward. We were in, and the rising commenced. <sighs> Are you sure you can continue? You were getting terribly excited. Of course I'm excited. Let me tell my story. Uh, sorry, go on. My military experience was very necessary during the occupation. Neither Pierce, Clark or McDermott had any actual military experience. They were all happy to let me at it. Yes, I've heard about your heroics. Oh, it was... It was Plunkett who was magnificent. He was dying. You could all see it. But he stayed on his feet to the end, marching along the rows of men at the windows waving his sword, spurs jingling and shouting news of victories like another British barracks on fire. And when we were leaving the GPO, he led a small group out to drag a van across one of the lanes down which machine gun fire was directed. He stood in great danger shouting, Don't be afraid! On! On! Your colleague Mr McDermott has made predictions about outcomes a hundred years hence. Then I should too. Whatever the outcome of our rising, I believe that a hundred years hence, 
Ireland will be at the point of a number of anniversaries of the great days of its patriot dead. Celebrations will be arranged. Much oratory will be flowing. All sorts of men and women will be drawing lessons and identifying morals. Irish people will be in stirring times. And many people may even hope they are in a revolutionary time. The Irish working class should try to understand the position of the revolutionaries of the past, that they may better realise their situation in the present. Have you any other outstanding memories of the week? Pierce reading the proclamation outside the GPO to the citizens. I went out and I shook his hand when finished. I said to him, thank God, Pierce, that we have lived to see this day. But I knew our time would be short as we hoisted our flags over the GPO. I told the men and women inside, This day, the flag of the Republic has been hoisted in Dublin. Its armed forces have everywhere met the enemy and defeated them, north, south, east and west. This is the greatest day in Irish history, and it is you who have made it so. They cheered. Aye, those are good memories. And then? And there were downsides. Yes, go on. What were they? Oh, the looting. It was awful. See Dublin citizens looting shops in Sackville Street. I know they were poor and had no reason to respect the bourgeois capitalists, but they were letting down the rising and hindering it. And what did you do? Some of the volunteers wanted to shoot them, but... I forbade it, explaining that these people had never been shown any respect, so they did not respect anything. We did fire shots over their heads, as it was an unsavory sight. They thought they were firing blanks as no one fell. They kept looting. And then poor Harry Jesus tried to stop them. Who? Francis Sheehy scaffing them. Jim Joyce dubbed him that because of his great compassion and even greater beard. He's a man of high intellect and integrity. He felt we were wrong to use force when civil disobedience would be more effective. Poor man. He stood on the steps of the pillar and appealed to the mob to go home. They booed him, threw assorted goods at him. We couldn't shoot them. We couldn't stop them. We had to let it run its course. Any other memories? Uh, yes. <laughs> One. I ordered that our flag, the Starry Plough, should be flown over the Imperial Hotel, opposite the GP Ho. This hotel is owned by William Martin Murphy. This would drive him mad to know that the Irish Citizen Army occupied his fine hotel. <laughs> <laughs> We've spent too long on our discussions. Uh, we haven't really got to the rising itself or your trial. Uh, can you handle it? Uh, yes, I'll continue. I had hoped that our seizure of buildings in the capital would galvanise the country. British troops were flooding into Dublin by boat, train and road, unimpeded. Plunkett's plans were in ruins. I brought in more forces from 
outlying posts that had to be abandoned. I seized the buildings opposite the GPO, the Imperial Hotel and Cleary store, and reinforced them. We came to dominate all approaches to the GPO. Any frontal British assaults would have risked heavy losses. It was the best I could do with limited forces. You were seriously wounded. Um, tell me a little bit how you got the wound. In repositioning men, I always went out with them to ensure their safety. That was when the bullet struck. I was alone and a fair distance from the entrance to the GPO. I was bleeding heavily. I knew I'd lie there and bleed to death if I didn't get back into the post office. I crawled to Princess Street, fired my pistol to attract attention from our snipers. It was a risk that they were liable to return fire. But luckily they saw who it was and they was dragged into the post office and was seen to... That's about it. Talk to me about your evacuation of the GPO. Uh, the British were obviously not going to charge. Instead, they began to fire incendiaries, and the street was ablaze. The GPO was also on fire. And you, we must rouse the spirits of our brave men and women. I wrote my last communique. In essence, it said that, for the first time in 700 years, the flag of a free Ireland floats triumphantly in Dublin. The British army are afraid to advance against us. Never had men and women a grander cause, and never was a cause more grandly served. The rousing self, and then the evacuation. We first moved the wounded through the wall breaches I'd organised. They went to Jervis Street Hospital. I waited back to be one of the last to leave for the Moore Street area. Pat and Willie Pierce carried my stretcher. Pat asked me how I felt, and I said, Bad. The soldier who did this did a good day's work for the British government. This is your wounded leg? Yes. I recall that I was being moved across open space with bullets flying. A young lad of no more than 14 put his body between me and the gunfire. Ireland is safe in such hands. He gave me more hope than all of Pierce's oratory. That night I slept with the other members of the provisional government in a house in Moore Street. I looked up, and on the wall was a portrait of Emmett. There is always a quiet remembrance. And that was when you sued for peace? We tried to sue for peace, but they offered unconditional surrender. We had no option. They would have burnt everybody alive. And the brave Irish soldiers did not deserve that. Pierce went out with Nurse O'Farrell to talk. And that was the last we saw them. She came back with the terms. I was carried out next and brought to Dublin Castle Hospital by four volunteers. We were booed by crowds all the way. There were few nationalists there and 
damn fewer socialists. I tried to cheer the lads carrying me as I could sense their despondency. I reminded them that the Empire had not been challenged in Dublin since Emmet. Lads, you are great, I told them. Was your wound treated? Oh, yes. <sighs> then Captain Wheeler came to me to co-sign the surrender order issued by Pierce, as the Citizen Army would not obey Pierce. He signed. I was, I knew, getting weaker from the loss of blood. Have you had a priest, Mr. Conway? Yes, I sent for Father Aloysius when I was in the hospital, and he said he had given his word to the authorities that he would attend me only as a priest and not in any political way. I told him it was a priest that I'd sent for him. Ah. Uh, is, is it very bad? Uh, yes. But not much more to endure either way. The doctor told me that my wound had remained untreated for too long and it was probably terminal at this stage. But he told the authorities that it would require a lot of treatment. I suspect he was stalling my treatment to save my life. As we'd heard that public opinion was hardening against the continuing executions. General Maxwell, he would have none of it. It may be the first time a dying man was executed. They tried me in the hospital, propped up in the bed. They weren't wasting time, waiting for my recovery or death. Have you had your family visit? Yes, my wife, Lily, and my daughter, Nora, came. Poor Lily cried. And I asked her not to, as it might unman me. She said, but your beautiful life. And I told her, yes. It had been a full life. And now with a good end. I knew we were only supposed to talk about family manners. But I had not seen any of my comrades since the surrender. I didn't know how my own citizen army lads had fared. Nora whispered to me about all the executions. Including poor Michael Malin. I said, well, I'm glad to be going to join them. When did you get transferred here to Kilmainham? A few hours ago. I think, Mr. Maxwell, that even the Home Rule papers would be hard-pressed to ignore our actions. Irish people will start to ask what is a free nation? They will finally see, through the confusion which prevails due principally to the pernicious and misleading newspaper garbage upon which the Irish public has been fed for years. I see that your political brain is still fully occupied. <laughs> while it still can, while it still can. Ah, oh. Goodbye to you. Goodbye, Mr. Connolly. It has been a privilege to get to know you.
Okay, I'm Charlotte Tannen. We have in studio to discuss this recording historian Wilmot Hines. Hello again. And panellist Roger Brazenby. Hello there. So, what did you make of it? Well, I think we're still too confused by developments to analyse Connolly's words. And I should explain, listeners, if you missed yesterday's programme, that Senora Maxwell Hogan, the owner of these historic recordings, has. Uh, she's gone missing. Also, the cylinders. Yes, and the ancients recorded cylinders. We're trying to find her. Nevertheless, I think we owe it to our listeners to continue. So, Roger, Hmm. what did you take from Connolly's remarks? Well, I want to remark on his considerable strength of character Mm -hmm. to keep giving the interviews, although in obvious severe pain. And it's clear from his remarks, and I can confirm that he wrote in similar vein in his publication Socialism and Nationalism, that he, and I think all the others had widely divergent views on the type of society envisaged. Here's a point to consider about the authenticity of these interviews. Wilmot, you have just confirmed um, that the voice of the purported Connolly repeated accurately what we know Connolly wrote a hundred years ago, correct? You're right, correct. So my point is, either these interviews are authentic or Senora Maxwell Hogan went to an awful lot of trouble to research and record this material. For what purpose? I've already said that Nier is not paying her and neither is she looking for money from the state. They have to be real. Without a chance for experts to examine the cylinders, we're just speculating. Which still leaves the three possibilities. Bogus woman flees, innocent woman kidnapped, or has breakdown. Take your pick. We are left with a mystery. I know, but look, Connolly took his planning further than the rising, didn't he? He was working towards the creation of, what did he call it, a cooperative commonwealth. He knew that many socialists would not understand his involvement in a mainly nationalist rising. But, as he said, I am also an Irishman. Mm. With his vision, he could see that nationalism was necessary to free the country and socialism was then needed to improve it. Yes, he made sure his soldiers got both military and economic education to deal with the narrow nationalism. He wrote that socialists must never hide their hostility to the bourgeois parties. He advised that history shows that the bourgeois revolutionaries of today become the conservatives of tomorrow. (laughs) Wilma, that sounds more like a dig at his military council comrades. He said that all non-socialist leaders of merely uh, national movements should be regarded in their true light as champions of the old social order and not heralds of a socialist republic. Go on. Connolly recognised two Irelands. The Ireland of the oppressed workers who were cheated and kept silent and the Ireland of the owners of everything with media to capture their every word. In reality, only one of these can exist at any at any time. He felt it was time for the workers to have their say. Roger, you're very silent there. Have you anything you'd like to add? No, uh, let Wilmar continue. Oh, well, the main reason, I believe, that Connolly resisted Redmond was because home rule was inevitably leading to partition and he believed that this would weaken further the interests of the working class Mm -hmm. on both sides of the border. He was well aware that the establishment of a socialist Mm. republic could expect no help from the bigots of of either green or orange as he described them. Well, he had to be referring to Clark and McDermott in that. No, No. his green bigots were the Redmondites. 
Ah. Uh, but he also knew that between himself and other members of the military council, there were ideological divisions. These would have to be resolved another day. Okay, yeah. Uh, thinking of the differences between Conley and the rest, uh, uh-huh. there would undoubtedly have been civil war if McNeil had not intervened and Plunkett's plans had been successful, you know. Yes, and uh, Connolly's smaller citizen army would probably have been annihilated. So we'd have wound up more or less where we are. A nationalist republic with Irish entrepreneurs flourishing. And where is the vision now of a cooperative commonwealth? <laughs> it lies with Connolly in his grave. Indeed, Connolly had such a far-sighted mind. You know, Hugh's assertions that about Connolly's prescience reminds me that Shona Casey left the Citizen Army as Connolly took it closer to the nationalist group. O'Casey predicted that the outcome would be exchanging one set of exploiters for another. Sadly, O'Casey was the prophet, not Connolly. Connolly's nationalism obscured his socialism. I'm sure Connolly was well aware of the dilemma. But he had concluded that until the national question was solved, socialism would never be tried in Ireland. Of course... The national question remains unsolved. I think you're right. Mm. Connolly was far-sighted, as was Pierce, who was more open-minded than some of his colleagues. Connolly persuaded Pierce to move from the vision of saving the people to encouraging the people to save themselves. In fact, by the time 1916 arrived, Pierce's rhetoric was as socialist as that of Connolly. So vision is what motivated the rebels. What is clear is that in the uproar of that historic period, a school principal and a trade union organiser would surely have disappeared without historical trace. But not now. Their vision saved them. I think we can acknowledge the achievements of 1916 while also recognising the work of Redmond on home rule. They were difficult times. People did the best they could. We shouldn't consider either tradition of failure... I mean, what is success in the context of 1916? Success is often seen as achieving your main stated ambition. And in that sense, Parnell failed, Redmond and O'Connell failed. But Pierce, Clark and Connolly ended their lives with success of sorts. <laughs> they didn't achieve separation, but their deaths at the hands of the British was the revolutionary catalyst they sought. A life lived fully can be about failure too. <laughs> you know, poor old Hugh. I think his aggression stemmed from not finding the utopian Ireland he had imagined. Perhaps. Uh, he thinks we failed him, when in fact we are a more aware place than 1900s. Ireland has moved on. Mm-hmm, I indeed. think his main complaint was that we dragged along too much of the rejected society. He sensed that Pierce and Connolly had a clear vision of what an independent republic would look yeah, like. But they didn't have to devise day-by-day plans and actions to develop well, it. Agreed. Nevertheless, it's not their fault that the republic was largely mismanaged by ineptitude and cronyism and a deliberate burying of the revolutionary aspirations. <laughs> it's as well poor Hugh went home, you know, trying to create the republic of Tone, Pierce and Connolly it would have driven him into an early grave. Oh, dear. And he'd have been dead well before his oh. funeral. <laughs> well, now, on that note, unfortunately, listeners, we have come to the end of our series and still no word on Senora Maxwell Hogan. 
The Garda are telling us that there's no evidence that she's left the country by air or sea, so she is still out there somewhere. Senora, if you can hear this programme, please contact us on the station and I'm sure we can sort everything out. I'd like to have solved the mystery. We may have lost the original cylinders, but fortunately we have the digital recording. Yeah, we have saved the last Easter voices. The voices that were paused. Their fierce imagination, shell-shattered in Kilmainham, their luminous minds dissolved in quicklime in Arbor Hill. Can we not leave them some privacy? Enough to know they dreamed and are dead. Okay, so, whatever about the provenance of the recordings, at least we have heard the ideas and motivations of these lost Easter voices. I suppose each of us must seek what relevance we can from them. Thank you all, and from Near FM, it has been our privilege. Slánlath. just listened to a special programme dedicated to the life and death of James Connolly. The Lost Easter Voices series was a dramatised recording. It was written and directed by Jack Byrne. Charlotte Tannen was played by Mary McNamara. Hugh Coy by Michael Sharp. Wilma Haynes was Peter Pryor. And Roger Brazenby was played by Tom Murphy. Signora Maxwell Hogan was Sally Galliana. The Lost Easter Voices were Podrick Pierce was Noel Kavanagh. Thomas McDonough was John O'Connor. Tom Clark was Joe Murphy. Joseph Plunkett was Ken Tui. Eamon Kant was played by Noel Murphy. Sean McDermott was Garrett Stack. James Connolly was Connolly James Heron. Producer Declan Cahill. Assistant Director Peter Cunningham. Musical score by Ken Tui. The script advisor was Dr. Bill Doris. And the historical advisor was Pat Liddy. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.